0: We can love someone so much, we can love someone and something other than ourselves so much that it physically hurts us when we're separated by death or distance or, you know, a breakup. So I think it's important to acknowledge that, that it's a beautiful part of you to be able to hurt in that way, to love someone that much. And if you were immune to heartbreak, on some level, you would be devoid of or disconnected from your ability to love and really deeply love. I'm not afraid of
1: Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rach Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. He is a psychologist. You may also know him as Riley Parker from Neighbours, and he also happens to be one of my best mates. Welcome to the show, Sweeney Young. Hey, Rach. <laughs> yeah, hey, I don't so know how many people remember
0: Riley Parker. If they do, they're very—they have a good memory.
1: Well, they've just had the the final episode. Yeah, neighbors is done.
0: Neighbours it's finished. You know, I, finished. I was on it for a year when I was eighteen, and I told them when they fired me, I said this show isn't going to last two minutes without me. And <laughs> yeah, look what's happened—they've done it to themselves.
1: It took a few years to kind of wind it down. Yeah, so, just fifteen you know, years
0: later. They yeah, they finally realized.
1: They yeah. finally realised that they could not keep the show going without the, the famous Riley Parker. Yeah. No, that's exactly. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, So this is really cool because this is the second time you've been on the show and I'm so happy to have you on because obviously um, for you guys listening, Sween is one of my best mates. We have known each other for a long time. And um, if you did listen to the first episode that Sween was on back in the first season, you'll kind of know the history of, of how we know each other. But basically we you know met as actors and we've known each other i, I don't know how many years it's been now Sween. how many how many years do we figure it out mm. like sort of 15 what or 17 like yeah 15 something years 15. yeah so and Sween and i have really great conversations and um, we often have quite uh, quite meaningful conversations and so this is really cool cuz i think you guys will get to get a bit of an insight into, I suppose, the stuff that we're interested in, which is human behavior. Obviously, Sween being a psychologist and me being a master coach in the sort of like uh, mental health and emotional health space. So we're going to go through a few interesting topics that I think that, you know, we all as humans kind of go through these types of things. And so I think this is going to be a really cool chat. I'm excited to get stuck into it. So I think one of the things that we have spoken about before, but I think it's interesting to touch on again is just, I think one of the hardest things as humans is to go through uncomfortable emotions and especially feelings of like grief and loss and heartbreak. And so I think what we do sometimes as humans is avoid them because they're pretty painful to go through. So I'm interested to know from your perspective, how can we actually sit with those emotions instead of avoiding them? Because Mm. it's so easy to want to avoid those emotions. They're really yucky to Mm. see.
0: I think it's really important to understand that a lot of the time, the reason we avoid those emotions is not because they're painful. We avoid them because they make us anxious. Really? Yeah, yeah. And the reason they make us anxious is usually because – They were a threat to some kind of attachment uh, when we were young, right? So for instance, if you grew up in a household where if you were sad, you were called a loser or lame or like your dad would just kind of like turn his nose up in disgust or or say your mum just couldn't handle you being distressed. So she would like freak out and panic and like, oh, how can I make you happy so that I don't have to feel bad that you're sad? On some level, that's a threat to that connection, or it feels like a threat to the connection. Because when we're young, we're very sensitive to that. So there's a really good chance that we'll become anxious about feeling that emotion, right? Because. So that
1: means, but that means that's a double layer on the emotion. So, firstly, you're feeling the emotion of whatever grief, sadness, loss. But then you've got, then what you're saying is there's a judgment for feeling that emotion.
0: Yeah. And the judgment might not be conscious. The judgment would be a third layer. So someone might have an emotion like grief or sadness, right? And then that just stirs up anxiety in their body because they learned to feel anxious about that because it wasn't welcome in their relationships growing up, right? So then the third layer would be some kind of defense against it to try and shut it down. That's where the avoidance comes in, right? So emotion, anxiety, defense. For example, grief, feeling sick to my stomach, judgment about the grief. And you say things like, oh, just fucking get over it anyway, or like just look to the future or just got to kind of like go hard, go to the gym or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Or it could be, oh God, I'm pathetic. Why aren't I over it again? Or it could be, I didn't care about that person anyway. There's a million different ways that we can avoid and defend against emotions. But I think it's really key to know that Most people will be able to tolerate some pain in their life because there might be a certain kind of painful emotion that doesn't stir up that much anxiety. So, for instance, you might not be able to feel sad, but you're able to feel anger because that was the way everyone communicated in your household. More often than not, for people who come into therapy, it's really hard for them to feel anger, especially for women, you know, but often for men as well. Yeah, so they'll get anxious when they get angry and then they'll do something to avoid it. And the problem is, they miss out on all the wisdom of their anger, of their sadness, of their grief, right? And that's where that's where people suffer psychologically, where they defend against their emotions and their anxiety. Mm.
1: So, how do we how do we actually process those emotions? Because we've talked about this before about the benefits of actually processing emotions mm. instead of avoiding them. And like you said, you know, you, you're getting anxious because you don't want to you don't want to bring up those, I guess, childhood um, Mm. patterns that you've learned. Yeah. And it would, I guess it would be beneficial for people to process emotions, but how do we process them? Because some people might not even know how to do that. Yeah, well, I think a lot
0: of us don't, you know, um, until we learn, until we're guided through it. Um, I personally think therapy is a great thing, not necessarily for everyone, Um, Mm. but it's a great way to... Um move towards things that you might feel an inclination to move away from, you know. Um, and I think it is about moving towards when we talk about processing emotions, I think really what we're just what we're talking about is deeply feeling them. You know but
1: what if someone what if someone's who's listening is thinking, why would I actually want to feel them? It's I don't want to feel them.
0: Well, the good news you is know? they don't have to,
1: you know. Um, What's, what will happen if they don't feel them though? Is there, Well, is there... only they can
0: know. You know what I mean? It's different for no. everyone because for some people, if avoiding their emotions is not causing them any other problems, then why would they change and I would not mm. advise them to. But um, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, you've got to want to be sober more than you want to be drunk, you know?
1: Yes, and, there's got to be a desire to actually
0: Yeah, move and, through them. and I think that desire can really become awakened once people understand the rationale, you know? Like if someone goes, you should be sad, you should be sad, you should be sad, and you have no understanding of why, well, then why would you, you know? And yes. especially if you've grown up in a family where sadness was seen as pathetic or a waste of time or whatever, right, um, or a burden to others, right, because there were other people in the family who were so unwell that they needed all the attention or whatever, um, then they're going to need to understand the rationale. So that's why in therapy um, the type of the main type of therapy I practice ISTp intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy there's a constant invitation for a positive goal with the client and I resist the urge to tell them what to do but rather you might say something like once you've figured out what their triangle of conflict is so the triangle of emotion anxiety defense that's causing their suffering once you understand that you might be like, Right, okay, so would you like to face your sadness so you don't have to get depressed anymore? Like if they're using depression to kind of numb themselves and get rid of a sadness and anxiety about sadness, then that's the invitation. Would you like to face your sadness so you don't have to be depressed anymore? Would you like to face your sadness and feel it deeply so you don't have to run from it anymore, so you don't have to live your life looking over your shoulder like a fugitive waiting for that sadness to catch up to you, feeling hypervigilant, feeling numb your whole life?
1: Yeah, so it's more a case of whether someone actually wants to yeah. not feel that way anymore, I suppose, right? It's it's mm-hmm. some people I hear what you what I hear you saying is that if for some reason you're experiencing uncomfortable feelings, but potentially they could be comfortable for you to feel. Like if you have always felt mm-hmm. sad or you you lean into depression or anxiety a little more, It almost can become really familiar that Mm. you actually don't want to not be anxious or not be depressed. So there has to be a desire from the person to actually want to shift that. Yeah, if not, then what's the what? I guess that's what people would be thinking is like, well, if I'm pretty content at because I know how to deal with my anxiety, I know how to deal with my depression, I don't really have a need to not be anxious or depressed. Well,
0: that's a fantastic position to be in. And if someone's out there thinking exactly that, then that just sounds like a fantastic position to be in. They're anxious, they're depressed, but they're quite content being anxious and depressed, so it's not a problem for them. Then there's really no need for them to seek out therapy or do anything different because being depressed and anxious is working for them and that's just a fantastic position to be in.
1: I feel like that's a really kind of radical thought though because I think what we hear so often is in society and culturally, I mean, anxiety and depression are quite normal as in, I feel like a lot of people feel anxious and depressed. But what I think we hear or definitely what I've noticed is that you, the stipulation is that we are trying to not be depressed and not be anxious. Well, so, yeah.
0: I mean, I think trying not to be depressed and trying not to be anxious is a fantastic thing um, personally. Uh, and for me, I'm not satisfied being anxious and depressed I know and believe that I don't have to live that way and that no one has to live that way. Yeah. So when I say it's a fantastic position to be in, I'm not talking to people who are anxious and depressed where it's a problem for them. But if someone has the stance and the belief that they're anxious and they're depressed but it's not a problem for them, life is still good, they're still content, well, who am I to say that uh, that's a problem for them? I would simply say to that person if they were my client, well, That's just a fantastic position to be in. You're anxious, you're depressed, but it's not a problem for you. And yet somehow your feet have brought you in to see a psychologist. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Being anxious, being depressed, not having any problem with it, but somehow your feet have brought you in to see a psychologist. Interesting, isn't it? And and usually because I'm not adopting the healthy part of them and trying to argue with them and say, no, it really is a problem, you should work on it. There's nothing for them to resist. And they're confronted with their own um, defense mechanism, right? And really, denial. Uh, well, denial is a judgment from the outside. I shouldn't say denial. They're confronted with the setup of their own mind, the current setup of the way they're living. Um, and they can decide whether it's a problem for them or not.
1: Yeah. So it has to come from within themselves to really. Yeah find that. So the other uncomfortable feeling that I think a lot of us experience or have definitely experienced in our lives is heartbreak. And I know you and I, since we've known each other for such a long time, we've both been through various life things that have brought us heartbreak. And I know for me, it's a really difficult uh, period of time to have to go through. Heartbreak is very painful and it's not something that I mean I think it's inevitable you will experience this in your lifetime whether you suppress it or not but it's one of those ones that I feel like we don't want to feel the heartbreak it's, it's you know probably going to happen but we don't want to feel it and so it's an interesting topic to kind of explore how can we move through heartbreak because that again is another really uncomfortable feeling and I think the circumstances around the heartbreak, it could be anything. It could be a breakup, could be a loss of somebody, you know, a variety of different things. The actual circumstances maybe aren't as relevant in terms of it's still causing the same emotional response. Yeah. So regardless of the actual thing that's caused the heartbreak, how do we sort of move through it? And, you know, because I think a lot of people distract themselves from feeling it because it's so painful. What's your sort of suggestion on how we can move through heartbreak? or how? And how have you done it? I mean, I've never spoken to you about this before, I don't think, actually. We've Out of all the conversations we've had, have we talked about heartbreak before?
0: Well, first of all, heartbreak does hurt, right? Yeah. And so if someone out there is feeling it, my sympathies, it, it hurts, right? There's no denying that. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that you're hurting, right? And then then things like distraction become a lot less problematic, right? Like if you could acknowledge, man, I really miss this person. I, I I feel really sad. I'm longing for them. Then if you can really let yourself acknowledge that and feel that, then there's not really too much of a problem with, you know, playing some video games or something engaging to take your mind off it, hanging out with friends or whatever. Um, because there's the distraction is not tantamount to denial of reality, mm-hmm. which always hurts us, right? Um, but if you're telling yourself, oh, it's fine, I don't care anyway, and you're just throwing yourself into distractions, then it'll catch up with you. And uh, so that's that's not the way i do it. Again, it comes down to being willing to feel your own pain. And the capacity for heartbreak is like the capacity for guilt. It's a beautiful facet of human nature, we can love so much that when we hurt someone, it physically hurts us and we feel guilt. That's beautiful, right? And that's often a part of heartbreak because none of us are perfect in our relationships. And we can love someone so much. We can love someone and something other than ourselves so much that it physically hurts us when we're separated by death or distance or you know a breakup. So I think it's important to acknowledge that, that it's a beautiful part of you to be able to hurt in that way to love someone that much and if you were immune to heartbreak on some level you would be devoid of or disconnected from your ability to love and really deeply love Um, now I think it's really important to differentiate between heartbreak the aching and longing for someone that's the flip side of love you know the the grief that comes with having lost something, sadness, that that kind of pain that has a bit of a sweetness to it Mm. and something more depressive, right? And they could co-occur. So if someone's had a heartbreak and they just long for the person, they feel sad, but they still can see themselves as worth something. And they, they know they're a good person or they know they could um, find other people who wouldn't want to be with them and love them. um, Then, you would say, okay, that, that sounds like a healthy heartbreak, right? Mm. Um, that's assuming the person wasn't horribly abusive and really should be feeling shame and, um, and and wanting to change the kind of person that they are. You know, guilt, I did something bad. Shame, I'm not being the kind of person that I want to be, right? Um, but assuming that's not the case, assuming it was, you know, a reasonably amicable, respectful relationship, There's a difference between feeling grief and then a depression on top of that where there's an element of self-attack, like, God, I'm pathetic, I'm terrible, I need to hide away from the world, I'm powerless, I'm disgusting, Um, it's all my fault, I'm such a bad person, and then maybe nihilism, right, or nihilism, whatever, um, where the person then feels that life is grey, life is meaningless without that person, without this person, there's no point going on because nothing could ever make them happy again. I think it's not a good not a good idea to deeply feel that because that's a contortion of the mind, and it's like someone who's self harming. That's what it is. It's an act of self harm, unconsciously to self attack in that way, to tell themselves that the world is meaningless. And you wouldn't want to encourage someone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't want to encourage someone to deeply self harm themselves further.
1: Yeah, so what you're talking about here is the heartbreak at the top level basically and then uh, a separate piece to that which is almost telling yourself a story about your worth as a person outside of the heartbreak and that can happen with some people where you go through the heartbreak and it becomes almost like you tell yourself a story about that incident being a reflection of your worth as a person. Yeah, yeah. So that's, t- that's totally. twofold. But I want to come back to that top level of, of heartbreak because I actually haven't asked you this before. Mm. What has been your greatest heartbreak?
0: I remember my first one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I uh, got dumped by this girlfriend I had when I was, you know, 19 or something. And uh, I, um, I remember Did like, I know
1: her? I didn't know her, did no, I? No, you wouldn't
0: know before I met you, I yeah, um, okay. I remember kind of like crying on the phone, like actually broke up with me. Like I kind of wanted her to hear how sad I was. Like
1: yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
0: And then this guy, um, uh, a friend of mine at the time, Steve Bestone who played my dad on Neighbors, right? So he was a yeah. bit of a father figure in, in a way to me. Yeah. Obviously older than me, he happened to just call me right after, and he could tell I was like Aah. right, <laughs> and. Uh, and he's like, oh, mate, what's up with you? And I'm like, I just got dumped. And he's like, oh, shit, well, I'll come pick you up. We'll have lunch or whatever. And um, nice. I, uh, he rocked up with his little baby and, and his wife and his mum. And uh, I walked out the front of my house and he kind of just looked me up and down and went, your first time? And uh, I was like, yep. And he goes, yeah, it gets easier.
1: <laughs> and there
0: was something really comforting for me in this older person who I respected. Um Taking a look, taking it all in, and not being phased by it. You know, he had confidence that I would go on, that I would have later heartbreaks, that I would get through it, and also he was letting me know that he'd been through it too, and and that he sympathised with the pain of it. So that was really nice. That was yeah, way. that is
1: nice. And I think that's cool to note though, because I think it's true. Like you do, I don't necessarily think this is just from my perspective. I don't know if heartbreak necessarily becomes less painful as you go through life. Definitely the first one, probably because you've never experienced it before. Mm. It feels, your perception of it feels a lot more intense than perhaps ones that have gone through. But I feel like I've gone through heartbreak. The ones that have been most painful have come later in life, even though I've had better coping skills to deal with the heartbreak and more conscious of the process of dealing with it. But I still feel like it can still get more intense. So, I'm, you know, I almost wonder whether your capacity for pain, the more you go through it, expands really because you've been through more. I think so. So, then you know, you've yeah. come back
0: from the brink before,
1: yeah. which gives so you confidence. You, yeah. Yeah. So, you can definitely sort of move through it. Well, you know that you're going to move through it. Like you said, have that confidence to yeah. move through it, even though it's can be painful. Yeah. I think, yeah.
0: I think feeling. Feeling deeply the emotions, uh, it always comes back to that. I remember um, I lost someone in tragic circumstances to suicide. And so that's a form of heartbreak for sure. And there a lot of sadness. I could feel the sadness. Um, and there was guilt too. Um, and someone very wise, a mentor of mine, David Spector, said everyone connected with that person will feel guilt because none of them were able to meet her needs, even if those needs were too great or it wasn't reasonable to place those needs on others. um, Because we love that person and because we weren't able to meet those needs, we will feel guilt. Um, And I was surrounded by people saying, oh, you have nothing to feel guilty about. You shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty. And, I knew I kind of needed to get away from that, even though everyone was trying to support me. So I went hiking for three days, you know, camping and hiking and um, uh, just with the intent of feeling it deeply, you know, and just trying to I kind was of running through nature and just trying to like let it pass through me and cry and feel it. And um, that was helpful um, not to run from it. Um,
1: yeah, I think getting in know. nature is a really great thing for, it doesn't really matter what emotion that you're processing just to just to be with yourself really
0: yeah
1: and i've we've talked about this before about letting the emotions pass through so if you are willing to look at the emotions just allowing it to pass through the body i definitely know that you feel better after while you're going through it it does suck it does feel a bit shitty and it's mm, painful yeah it depends but, on the emotion right yeah but,
0: and i think there's a difference between um feeling pain and and human suffering. Feeling pain, there can be a kind of sweetness to it and when you really let yourself feel it and you fully accept it, a calmness and it has There's a real sense of alignment with yourself, suffering is not like that. Like, you know, if you've been down that whirlpool of negative thinking, that kind of spiral of depressive self-hatred or whatever, or nihilism, then there's nothing kind of natural or sweet about it. It might offer familiarity if it's been a coping mechanism that's been in place for a long, a long time, but there's not a kind of naturalness or pureness or sweetness. It feels like a contortion of the mind. It feels horrible. It's, it is shitty. It is crappy. Um, So I think if that's the experience people are having, then uh, maybe they're not really feeling their pain without extra self-attack or uh, defences
1: or anxiety in place. Yeah, I think you you said a couple of things there about being in alignment and the sweetness of the emotion, mm. which I really like that because there I, I do understand what you're saying. There's a difference between suffering and allowing those emotions to pass through, even if they're difficult. I think I've I've said to friends before as well, there's with heartbreak specifically. There is a sweetness to the sadness because without the sadness, it's almost like you wouldn't know that there was love there, and that that connection between the heartbreak and love is that the reason why you are sad and the reason why you are heartbroken is because you dared to love in the first place. Yeah, and so that's the sweetness of the of the heartbreak, right? And so I I know what you're saying, even though it sounds a bit strange to because it's sort of opposing ideas in a way, but they kind of go together because without love, there's no heartbreak without, and not to say that you're going to be heartbroken over every love that you have, but I mean, there's, you know, heartbreak is infused with love. That's, that's why you're heartbroken in the first place. So I quite love yeah, that.
0: It's like that rejoicing grief. Yeah. You and why people can maybe laugh so much at a wake mm. after a funeral, you know, like maybe sharing funny stories about someone they... They loved, you know. um, Yeah. uh, Yeah, it's part of the appreciation of the person.
1: Yeah, I really like that. Now, I'm interested to know because I think when we kind of think about talking about this stuff, right, and I know I love talking about human behaviour and and all of this stuff, sometimes I feel like, though, that you can get so caught up talking about this stuff, going over and over and over it, almost – overthinking things, that in a way, do you ever feel this, that you're just like, when can I just stop talking about this? Because now I'm just talking about it over and over over again. And I definitely know with girlfriends, uh, as a generalisation, I think women do this a lot where we talk about things over and over and over again and maybe we say the same story to different friends and is there a point where, Talking about it, but not actually taking any action to change things is detrimental to us. Because I definitely know that for me, if you're going through thoughts over and over and over in your head, and overthinkers listening will probably resonate with this, where there comes a point where you're just like, there's no point in me thinking about this over and over and over again because it's actually not changing anything. All it's actually doing is holding whatever this thing is in my attention or my focus. But nothing's changing. I still feel the same and I'm just now going over and over it in my mind. So what would you say to that? I'm interested to know your take on that. It's almost like you get sick of your own self thinking about the same thing over and over again, you know?
0: Yeah, and if you're talking about it too much, other people might get sick of you too, you know? (laughs) Sometimes people's, the way they are with the world, the way they try and cope can serve to alienate them. And I I feel really the word like apprehensive or trepidatious or whatever like um saying that because um i don't want to imply that people who suffer um you know don't deserve friends or can't maintain relationships but often when someone is suffering to a huge degree um it's it's kind of hard to for people to really get in there and really know the real them and like get get to the heart of them you know because there's so much self-attack. There's, there's so much going on that's distancing that person from what they truly feel at core. It's going to be hard for other people to know them too. And there'd be a bunch of other reasons why people would end up um, alienated. Um, and I really hope <laughs> me saying that doesn't come across like, uh, it doesn't, doesn't stigmatize people who suffer um, psychologically. We all suffer psychologically. Of course, I think we all know that the way you suffer, if it spills out onto others too much, you know, they might get sick of hearing the same story again and again and again.
1: Because I I mean, one of the things too, and I'm definitely someone who is not afraid to look at things within myself, beliefs, you know, a lot of the things that we go through in life are repeated patterns from childhood or trauma, things like that. But I also wonder if there's a point where looking at your childhood patterns and trauma becomes detrimental because it almost sometimes seems like it's never ending. I mean, there's, there's, you could look at a million things. There's always something to look at. You know, you, it seems like you could literally continue to unpack things forever and never really be done with it. So, you know, part of my contemplating at the moment is more around I mean, in some ways, isn't it detrimental to just continue to unpack all this stuff all the time? I mean, sometimes I think, wouldn't it be so great to be almost blissfully unaware? I mean, even if you are suffering, and, and I I do think we all have an element of self-inflicted suffering that we put ourselves through, whether it's conscious or not, but I, and me being someone who's relatively emotionally intelligent, quite self-aware, sometimes I think to myself, wouldn't it be easier just to be blissfully unaware of all this stuff that's going on, just continue to live my life, and yes, I might suffer, I might unconsciously put myself through suffering, but if I'm not aware of myself doing that, it makes no difference, you know? Like
0: Yeah, but Rachel, <laughs> Rachel... That's impossible for you. I think we both know I know for me, that. but I You're mean, not, you can't you can't turn off your awareness and become blissfully unaware. No, you, that's not your. That's not who you no,
1: are. No, I know, I know. But but if I were able to be,
0: unless you gave yourself a brain injury or something. And yeah.
1: sometimes I think you know, and I've always thought being emotionally intelligent and and self aware is a really great, probably one of my greatest strengths. But I really, really appreciate it. But sometimes I definitely think. It'd be nice to take a break from not being aware, you know, and, and being blissfully unaware.
0: Yeah, maybe, but here's the thing. Uh, when you wish for something that's impossible like that, and I'm a massive culprit, I'm always imagining myself like beating up a criminal and you know, saving some girl or something, uh, it's a subtle denial of reality. Yes. So I would say don't put any energy into it. You can't have it. You cannot have it. It's, it's that option, that route is closed to you, yes. Rachel, just knowing you and probably for a lot of people listening. It is as well. You can't, you can't be blissfully unaware. So the best you can hope for is to have moments of bliss because life's tragic, life's hard um, and be aware and you know, <laughs> work hard for it. Because here's the thing, you might think, oh, what if I was suffering, but I wasn't aware of it? Eh, I mean, is that even really the case? Like, I guess someone could be numb and not be aware that they I think some
1: people don't know. Pain.
0: But most people hate – most people describe numbness as the worst kind of suffering, you know. But so, if they don't
1: know that they're numb yeah. or they don't know that they're causing their own suffering, then, then it makes no difference. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not talking about me personally, but I mean if someone mm. is suffering and you can see that they're suffering but they don't actually know that they're creating their own suffering, they don't know any different. They don't know what it's like to be yeah. – well,
0: then they're not going to go to therapy. They're not mm. going to – because they'll they'll believe that they're totally mm. fine. And sure, maybe they are, yeah. you know, they're the expert on yeah. them. You were to inject some kind of a, uh anesthetic into you so you were numb and then you were cutting your arm or your leg. You're still damaging your body, right, even if you can't feel it. And you wouldn't want to let someone else damage you or hurt you even if you couldn't feel it. And at some point, either the anesthesia is going to wear off or you're going to get an infection. You know, there are people who are born without the ability to feel physical pain and they don't last long. And certainly their fingers and toes don't last long. Mm. You know, they get infections. They get, you know, uh, stabbed through the feet with nails. They don't realise. They lose things to gangrene. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't last long. Uh, it's important to listen to the wisdom of our pain um, so, we can, so we can change. And it goes back to what you were saying before. What if someone's complaining, 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 never changing anything? well, I guess at some point they'll either get sick of it or they won't. And they'll just keep know?
1: repeating the same um, cycle over and over again. Yeah.
0: yeah, And that's not to say it's their fault, but it's certainly their responsibility to deal with whatever's been laid at their feet, you know. And I think, yeah, if you've had some kind of painful upbringing, like I guess a lot of people have, almost all of us have, then it, there's no necessity to go back over it. and uh, relive it constantly, or talk about it all the time. But I think for a lot of people, they might go through a few years where they, uh, they their suffering gets to the point where they feel they really want to figure out why they want to understand why they behave the way they do. Because on an intellectual level, the part of their brain that's above the waters of consciousness, they know that it's not helping them, but they keep doing this thing. You know, like addiction or being aggressive or getting depressed or whatever. And they might spend a few years really intensely looking at what was my childhood actually like underneath the narrative that we all told ourselves about our family. Um, And it's really important to feel the emotions now in the present moment about what happened to them back then so they can set themselves free from how their suffering um, has been caused by not dealing with those emotions in the present. So I'll say that again, because that's kind of a, uh, confusing sentence, right? If someone has anger at, say, a parent who neglected them or abused them or would kind of be really, really lovely but then suddenly treat you like the worst kid ever, right? If that that child is going to have anger at that parent for that, right? But if they're young and they're not able to feel it because they need to stay attached to their parent and there's this sense that if I'm angry at dad, he'll just flip out or beat me or or it kind of challenges this narrative we have that we're the perfect family, then that child might get anxious about it and they might suppress or turn their anger inwards, right? And that might be the best option they have at the time. And life might go on kind of pretty well until there's a cause to get angry again, like they get broken up with or they're in a relationship and like in all relationships, all of their needs are not getting met or they're getting bullied at work or something. And suddenly, instead of going, hey, excuse me, I'm not cool with you talking to me like that. I'm really keen to have a professional relationship with you, but we're going to need to sort this out because your tone, the way you criticize my work in front of all those people, it wasn't cool. So let's have a coffee. Let's talk about it. Let's find a way to work together. They they find that they're not saying that. Instead, they go to the bathroom and crying and getting depressed and they're thinking, oh, I'm the worst accountant ever. I'm the worst mm-hmm. lawyer ever. Right, getting depressed. At that point, some, an a way of dealing with an emotion from the past has become a problem in yeah. the present. If it never became a problem in the present, they probably yes. wouldn't look, right? But it's it's not their fault that they're coping like this, but it is their responsibility if they want to not be depressed to go back and it. reclaim their capacity to feel anger. And that might mean feeling angry at the parents who were the original neglectors, the original abusers, because it's not about Susie yeah. from county.
1: It's talking about right? the the present triggers that are triggering that, that underlying thing that you haven't looked mm.
0: at. Well, it's, it's the present triggers that trigger a real emotion, for anger. The past. And then, well, the anger is, is mm-hmm. present, right? At Susie from accounting for bullying you or whatever. Um, but there's an old defense mechanism that comes in because it's not safe to be angry at someone with whom I'm kind of connected or in some kind of social structure with, right? So because I had to suppress my anger at my mum, dad, grandma, whatever, growing up. And because that anger makes me anxious because it wasn't allowed in that relationship, now when Susie from Accounting bullies me, instead of going, fuck off, Susie, (laughs) or something more assertive like what I said before, um, they'll get anxious and they'll suppress their anger and get depressed and not even realise that they were angry. And so the journey in therapy, I think, with the way I practice, would be help that person feel what they feel towards Susie so they can deeply connect with their anger and then restructure that defense so that in future when they get angry they just get angry yes and they don't get depressed yes. right and i think that's the value of going back into the past um and it'll kind of the connections will emerge as they reconnect and get closer to their anger or as they start to ponder as they become as they realize like if i'm saying to someone hey do you notice how when this person bullies you like anger comes up at them, but it instantly makes you anxious and then it just comes back on you and somehow you're depressed. Do you notice that? And you might need to repeat it again and again. Do you notice how when you get angry, somehow it ends up coming back on you and you don't even really get to feel your anger? Do you notice that? And once they can really notice that, you might say something like So, what you're telling us is that it was really important for you at some point to not feel your anger. It was really important for you to not feel your anger and instead to get depressed. So you're telling us that some relationships could not tolerate your anger growing up, and that it was really important to turn it inwards. And then you just sit and watch, and the wheels will turn, and they might say something like, "Yeah, I'm getting this memory of, you know, like my dad, and one time I got angry at him because he was late, and he slapped me across the face, or he he told me to shut up, mm-hmm. or whatever." Um, and they might start making the connections and go like, "Whoa, I learned this when I was young," and that's the value of going back into the past,
1: yeah, I believe. So it's like a learnt response and we're talking about here, just to sum up what Sween just said because that was, uh, I know not all of us are clued into psych speak, but basically we're talking about depression or anxiety as a defence mechanism for suppressed anger, basically. So there's, there's some sort of anger there underneath and you've got a defence mechanism sitting on top, that doesn't allow you to express the anger and it could be for a, a yeah. variety of different reasons in terms of what, what you learnt as a child or what happened where you learnt that it wasn't okay to yeah. express your anger basically is what we're saying. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yep. And I think um, it's really common for women mm. to feel disconnected from their anger and I guess that's maybe um, a variety of reasons for that but maybe boys are encouraged to wrestle and fight, things like that. But Girls, less so, less encouraged to be aggressive or angry in a healthy way. Um, so then women can feel disconnected from their anger and, and get depressed instead or passive instead. And so, you know, it, a lot of happens to a lot of guys too. Uh, if people, for people who say, oh, I don't get angry, I'm just someone who doesn't get angry, sure, but we all get angry. Um, and... If someone is saying they don't get angry and they feel numb, they feel passive or they feel depressed or they feel out of control of their lives or they feel that things are purposeless, then I would say there's a really good chance those two things are related and it would be great to investigate why they don't feel anger and if it's related to them getting depressed. And a really great way to think about it is just to go, well, when's the last time I felt more depressed? So if you're in an episode of depression, it can feel like it's just this amorphous blob and it's really hard to navigate. And it's really important to stop and think, well, when did it start? When did this little blob start? When did it get worse? And often there'll be some kind of a trigger, almost always. And often it's a trigger where there could have been some anger you know, it, it seems quite feasible that there would be anger. So someone put me down or someone imposed on me or I, I said yes to someone when I really wanted to say no and now suddenly, you know, they're staying at my house for a month for free or whatever, right? Um, and and then it's worth just considering could, could anger be being suppressed and turned inwards on myself as a way to defend against anger and anxiety and the fear of loss of connection or judgment or whatever. Uh, and if someone starts to notice that worth well, seeing a therapist, I reckon, really trying to understand it. Yeah, and I
1: think also it could be a good idea to look to ways to express your anger uh, aside from obviously, you know, speaking to the person like you said before and, and directly expressing to them how you feel sometimes can be a bit uh, confronting at least to begin with. But also, you know, there might be other ways to express anger as well. I know for me when I have been going through Tough times. And I, you know, I, it resonates with me, you saying that about, uh, and I know I can't speak for all women, but I definitely haven't been someone who has been an angry person. I wouldn't necessarily call myself someone who has been very comfortable with expressing anger, but there's definitely times where I have been angry. But one of the things that's really helped me, aside from speaking to the person, but I mean, just to move the anger out through the body is you know, I'm, I'm a box or so box and boxing is a really great way for me to move the emotion through the body so that even if you do speak mm-hmm. to the person and if, if they've caught, if they've done something that you have gotten angry about, firstly, you can move through that emotion by doing some sort of physical activity like boxing, just for yourself to move through the emotion so that you don't necessarily mm-hmm. have to speak to the person in an angry way. Do you know what I mean? Because... Yeah.
0: It doesn't have to have anything to do with yes. the other person, you know? Because sometimes people, you know, I'll be like, would you like to face this anger at your mum so you don't have to turn around yourself and get depressed mm-hmm. anymore? Haven't you sacrificed your happiness for 20 years? Isn't that long enough? Wouldn't you like to face your anger at your mum and not be depressed anymore? And they might say something like, but, you know, I I, I don't want to, I, I love my mum. I don't want to have to like tell her all this stuff or I don't want to have to, you know, bring up the past or whatever, and you've got to reassure them. It doesn't have to have anything to do with them. It's just so that you can deeply feel what you feel within these four walls, you know. Um, And, yeah, sure, like if boxing helps, great. I think uh, we've got to be wary, though, of denying anger and then trying to channel it out into something because, you know, the boxing bag didn't cheat on you. The boxing bag didn't hit you as a kid. The boxing bag didn't do anything to you, right? So the anger has to be acknowledged at who it's yes. at because anger will always have a direction. Um, so that's really important. And then, yeah, if you want to box and imagine that person's face there, great.
1: I don't even um, think it's about that. Just, like, I think it's about – I mean, I I agree with what you're saying. Obviously, you need to acknowledge why you're angry and, and what the circumstances yeah. were around whatever it is that ha- made you angry in the first place. But I think just even – you know, it's it's not necessarily that beneficial for you to go and um, you know, like if you're if you're angry at your mum to go and yell at your mum and be angry at your mum. You know uh, what I mean? So no, it's a way no, no. to.
0: But in your mind, you might yell. In your mind, yeah, of course, and more aggressive. And in your so mind. it's
1: it's just yeah. a way to move it through the body in some ways. I've I've found that really really yeah, helpful yeah. because uh, emotions really are energy in the body, and if you don't. We've talked about this before where if you don't acknowledge them or you suppress them, they do get stuck there. They get That gets stuck in your body in terms of that yeah. sort of, you know, the, the vibration and that energy just gets stuck. Yeah. So movement is a great way that you can actually move it through the body and, and release it from the body, but then also it, from an intellectual perspective to understand and acknowledge why you're angry, who you're angry at and... And being able to, like you said, you can have that conversation in your mind. It doesn't have to be with the person in in real life, but just to, just to know for yourself why that emotion is there in the first place.
0: Yep, 100% yeah, hundred percent agree. And you know, yes. if someone is not able to make those connections, then I don't think boxing <laughs> will be helpful. Yes. You know, it'll just serve to keep them in a situation they don't want to be yeah. in, right? So, for instance, you know, if someone finds out. Their partner is probably cheating or something like that. Um, and they they go, oh, you know what, w- whatever, I'm just trying to live in denial. But then they go, oh, I've got this anger. It's like I'm just angry at the world. Maybe I'm an angry person, but you know what, I'm going to try and feel it. I'm going to go to boxing class and just mm. get it out. And they kind of manage to move some of that energy through. Well, all they've really done is help them tolerate uh, help themselves to tolerate being treated like mm, trash.
1: So it's more right. a case of acknowledging yeah. and also moving the emotions through. You you sort of because then it becomes Yeah,
0: feel it towards who you're feeling it and listen to it because it will come with an impulse. And it won't if you really deeply listen, the impulse won't be towards a mm. boxing bag. Yeah. You know? The impulse will be towards setting a boundary, getting your needs met, mm. punishing someone who's hurt you. Yeah. You know? Um and then I think if you can really deeply connect with that and set your boundaries, yeah, boxing class, sure, yeah. as well.
1: I'm, I'm interested to know if there's anything in particular that you want us to discuss because I feel like we've gone through pretty much all the things that I really wanted to hit in this episode. Mm-hmm. So I'm throwing it to you. Is there anything that you want to ask yeah, sure. and or discuss yeah. to end well, this? I think
0: a lot, of po- a lot of people don't really know what therapy entails mm-hmm and don't understand necessarily that there are heaps of different styles of therapy. And most practitioners will be um, skilled in multiple styles of therapy. So I'd love to give a bit of an overview of a few different types of therapy because then that way if people are out there suffering, um, they might hear one that really resonates with them and something clicks and they go, yep, that could really help me because there's research that shows that if a technique or a style of therapy aligns with uh, the way the client wants to work on whatever they're working on, that that's predictive of better outcomes and, you know, people are experts on themselves. How yeah, does that let's sound?
1: give give me the top three. Let's give me three, yeah. All right,
0: sure. So the one we've mostly been discuss- discussing is psychodynamic mm-hmm. therapy and the method that I use a lot and I'm training in is ISTDP, which stands for Intensive Short-Term dynamic psychotherapy and there are a number of practitioners of ISTDP in Australia and the basic premise is um, Is is that we suffer because we somehow deny reality we try and cope with the reality of our painful histories and traumas and uh, emotions uh, that are showing up in our body presently as pain as a legacy from that time we try and cope with that in a way that once was necessary Um, or was the best we knew how, but is now hurting us, right? So, for instance, we get depressed instead of feeling angry because it was important for us to be passive in our household, you know, or we um, just numb ourselves from all our feelings because, you know, we had a brother who was disabled who needed a lot of attention and we just didn't want to burden the family anymore or whatever, right? Or we neglect ourselves because our parents neglected us and so we needed to neglect our needs, so that we weren't constantly asking them for something they couldn't give us, right? So neglecting ourselves is a way to reject ourselves before we get rejected, right? But then this causes suffering in our current lives. So then the ICDP therapy aims to help the person understand exactly what's going on, figure out why, and then there's an invitation to deeply feel their pain or acknowledge their needs or whatever, so that they don't have to suffer anymore. So it's basically an invitation to look underneath defense mechanisms that are hurting someone. And it's only necessary if the person is suffering and those things become a problem in their mind. So that's ISTDP. And it might look like, you know, a kind of pressure to, all right, so what do you feel towards Susie in accounting? Oh, well, she's right. I'm a shit accountant. Yeah, but that's thoughts. What do you feel towards her if you don't attack yourself? Oh, I just feel sad. Okay, but that's between you and you. What do you feel towards Susie from accounting? well, I just, I think, I don't even know. Yeah, but that's vague. If you really take a look, because only you can know, what do you feel towards Susie from accounting? Ah, I just think maybe I'll just quit and leave and find another job somewhere else. Yeah, but if you don't avoid your feelings towards Susie, how do you feel your feelings towards Susie? What do you feel towards Susie from accounting for demeaning you? I think I'm a bit angry. You think? A bit? Are you angry or not? Yeah, I am. Okay, so how do you feel that anger towards Susie in accounting? oh, it's like this hot feeling in my chest, right? And in that moment, can almost guarantee that person will not be feeling depressed, even if they were 10 seconds, 20 seconds before, mm-hmm. right? So then it's about helping the person to deeply feel their anger. And that's just one very generic example, right? Um, so that's ISTDP. Uh, another kind of therapy that's really amazing is called EMDR. So talked about this one. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So this is a really amazing kind of a therapy and it can work for single incident trauma, even multiple incident trauma, extremely effectively. Average treatment time for PTSD is four sessions and I've seen it happen in less than that really effectively. It's a neurological phenomenon with uh, a few decades of research supporting its effectiveness. EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy. Now, Someone can do EMDR without having to talk a huge amount about what they're going through. If they're not wanting to show up and talk and talk and talk, this could be the therapy for them. Someone can go through EMDR on an entire course of therapy without ever telling the clinician what the trauma is. Wow. Now, that's going to make it harder for everyone involved, but mm. you can do it. Uh, it's called the blind to clinician protocol, right? So basically, uh, there's a theory that... Trauma memories are not connecting with what else we know about ourselves and our place in the world and relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've had a trauma we had a car accident and now suddenly you're terrified of getting in the car um, or being on the street, you're not able to, and you're looking over your shoulder constantly thinking a car is going to run you down, that trauma memory is still feeling really present and it's almost like an overlay over your current reality. Um, And what needs to happen for you to recover is for that to become just one car-related incident among the ten or 20,000 car-related interactions you've had, right? So EMDR would serve to help that memory fit into the context and you might find yourself when you think of the accident, instead of getting a rush of anxiety and fear and looking over your shoulder, instead you think, man, that sucked and uh, I guess that was one in 100,000 and there's a good chance I'll be really careful and it won't happen again, right? It can also just change the memory, so that when you go to think of that memory, you just kind of go, "Well, I'm not really even thinking of it," or "I just get bored," or "I, mm-hmm. I just think, yeah, red cars are cool." T-
1: takes the emotional you know, like heat you
0: off, it, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So, and I've seen that happen with horrific traumas, you know, like assaults, sexual assaults, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Or um, I've treated people with EMDR. Now, what does it look like? Um, it might be something like, "Okay, so think of the car crash. Really go there in your memory." Um, say to yourself, whatever it is that you normally say to yourself when this memory comes up, which you've worked out together. And that might be something like, um, I'm really unsafe on the road. Okay. So say those words, notice how you feel in your body. What do you feel? Oh, fear, anxiety. I feel sad. I feel sick to the stomach with anxiety. Okay. So just focus on that and just watch my fingers. Mm. Right. And you'll give them some kind of cognitive task. Right. And if Uh, You have to watch something move very quickly, and especially if it has random unpredictable movements, it's actually quite mentally taxing if you're also trying to hold an emotional memory in mind at the same time, right? So what happens is that a lot of the emotion and intensity and vividness of the memory is let go. Theory is that the brain is letting go of that detail so that it can still hold the memory in a simpler form and do the task. Now, after the EMDR is complete, the memory is laid down in a much less intense way, but it does more than that. It does more than just desensitise. It also helps process. So it allows that memory uh, to communicate with the other parts of the brain, and then there's something about distracting uh, the analytical parts of the mind. And so you'll do a 30-second set, and you'll say something like, well, what do you notice? And the client might say something like, well, I'm just thinking about all the times I drove in the car and had a close call. Okay. So just notice that. Watch my fingers. Okay. What are you noticing now? Uh, I guess I'm just thinking that it was a real freak accident and you know that kind of thing hasn't happened to me before. Okay. Just notice that. What are you noticing now? They might say something like, well, I guess I just kind of, it almost feels like a movie. Like I'm watching it happen to someone else. Okay. Just notice that. So that's that distancing effect. And then What are you noticing now? And they might say, you know, I kind of feel like I'm a good driver and so, you know, I'm I'm able to be safe on the road if I really work at it. That's processing. Okay, just know that. Right? And then by the end of the EMDR, you might say, okay, is that memory different from when we started? And I go to think of it and sometimes I go, yeah, it's not really distressing at all or, yeah, it's kind of just like some, I don't know, I I go to think of it and I just kind of get distracted because it's uninteresting Mm, to me. Right? So that's EMDR. And then uh, I'll quickly tell you about another kind of therapy, internal family systems therapy, which I think is really cool, IFS, internal family systems therapy. People can listen to a real example of that on Tim Ferriss' podcast, the episode with Richard Schwartz, mm-hmm. um, internal family we'll systems therapy. will
1: put that up in the show notes
0: everyone as well. Yeah, that's, it's got a real spiritual element to it. There's a theory that every one of us has a core self that cannot be hurt or injured cannot be damaged. I mean, it can be hurt, sorry, but it cannot be injured. It cannot be scarred. It's pure. It's knowledgeable. It's deep. It's wisdom. It's full of wisdom. It's connected to everything, right? And then we have these little parts of us that are like child parts or um, parts that are mobilized to protect us. Mm-hmm. And these parts can be in in real extreme roles in their efforts to try and protect us, especially if we've been traumatized before. And so in IFS therapy, The client is invited to connect with their core self and then communicate with these parts and help the parts communicate with each other um, to undo problematic coping. So for instance, you might have a client who says, Oh, I want to get close to people, but you know, every time I get close, it's like something inside me just says, like, run away, run for the hills, right? Now, if they're starting to use language like that, right, because they're already using that language of parts. So I'll roll with that. And then the person can be invited to kind of communicate with that part and say, hey, can you get a sense of that part that tells you to run away when you're feeling connected? They might close their eyes and, and you know, they go, yeah, yeah, I guess I do. Right, okay, what do you feel towards it? Well, I feel pretty pissed off because it's ruining all these connections. Yeah, sure, I understand that. But could you ask that anger, although it's reasonable to just relax for a minute so we can come at this part with an attitude of curiosity. And if they're able to do that, then it might be, um, then you might say, right, well, what do you feel towards it now? And they go, yeah, I, I just want to know what it's about. Okay. So do you get an idea of what it looks like, how old it is? And if you ask it how old it is, what does it say? And they might go, oh, it's kind of weird, but it said 12. Or like, I just had the number 12 pop into my mind. You know, It seems a kind of 12, looks like a 12-year-old version of me. Okay. So why don't you just ask it, like, what is it trying to protect you from? And they might go, it's weird. I just kind of had this thought pop into my head. It's trying to protect me from being hurt. Oh, okay. Could it tell you more about that? Does it have anything to show you? And the person might go, yeah, I'm kind of getting these memories flood through of all these times I was hurt at 12 when my mom left me. Right. Okay. And so, you know, then, and then, you know, you can see how it would go from there, but basically the person then will develop compassion for this part of themselves and this coping mechanism and open up a channel of communication with them. And hopefully it's humble enough to change the way it protects that person. You're never going to get rid of that part, but you might, you wouldn't want to, but it might start to help you um, just by being less sensitive or by reminding you to set boundaries with people, even when you're connected or whatever, right? Um, So that then you can enjoy connection with people um, without connection, feeling so dangerous without this part coming up and going, watch out you might get abandoned so you shouldn't even love them in the first place and that's why I'm going to make you distance Mm. by flooding you with anxiety every time you get close right instead what happens is maybe the part learns to say um you know uh hey this could this seems like a really lovely person um let's really try and connect because that's a really great healing experience for us given how we were abandoned by our mum when we You know, so in that way people can change the structure of their consciousness. um,
1: Yeah, I quite like uh, that.
0: Communicating directly. That
1: I've definitely heard of. um, You can even do this. There's, I don't know who, I can't remember who does this, but I've definitely heard it as well from maybe a coach or something where we it's kind of dealing with the same philosophy around the parts And you can do this with parts writing Which is sort of like If you have a part of yourself Like you were saying that That is a conflicting thing for what you actually want to achieve, like an outcome or something like that. You can write from that part. So you can almost talk to yourself and say, well, okay, if it, if it is anger or if it's uh, protection or something like that, name it, and then write from that space. And then sort of almost thank it for its thoughts or whatever, set it aside, and then, and then access another part. I, I quite like that because I think that we all obviously have different parts within us that are not necessarily always conscious, but – they coexist almost. And so it's like not denying the different parts of yourself and almost acknowledging those different parts that are coming through. So, yeah, that was really cool. Well, amazing. Thanks so much for going through all of that. I hope hope that everybody listening has taken something out of that because, of course, there's many different ways to approach therapy and I know that sometimes therapy can have a bit of a a stigma attached to it. I feel like now, though, it's not as – especially after COVID, I feel that – therapy and looking after your mental health is definitely – there's not as much of a stigma attached to it, which is really great. Um, But thanks, Sween. I really – enjoyed that chat i know we can talk for hours on this but we do have to (laughs) we can't we can't have like a four hour long podcast episode but what we're going to do is we'll pop all the links up in the show notes and just make sure guys if you are listening and you've been loving the podcast make sure you leave a rating or review over at apple podcasts uh and also screenshot this episode tag at Rage Active and share it to your socials. And thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Swine, again for being on the show. And we'll catch you next time on the Rache Active Podcast.